Thank you for listening to sermons by Chaplain Braswell. This ministry desires to help people know and live for Christ through the preaching of God's Word. And now, today's message. Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. My name is Chaplain Dan Braswell. Well, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, as we look at lessons from the genealogy of Jesus. Lessons from the genealogy of Jesus. I, I remember when uh, Cheryl and I adopted uh, our four children uh, 12 years ago now, I think it is. So, it's a long time ago. Uh, we began to uh, read through scriptures uh, with them, and I can remember a couple of things. We started in Genesis, which went along fairly well. Genesis reads like a story because it is a story, so we learned about creation and Noah and Abraham and all kinds of all kinds of cool things. But buried in there a couple of times, if you recall, your Old Testament is a couple of genealogies. Which let's just say as we're as you're reading through that with four-year-olds and eight-year-olds, it doesn't exactly hold them on the edge of their seats. You know what I'm saying? Well, we come to another genealogy today in Matthew chapter one. We're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ. How many of you have done these ancestor.com and all, and all that kind of stuff, or went down those rabbit holes with your with your own with your own life? I tried. I'm too cheap to pay for that stuff, but I did do a little Google internet research. Spent about an hour, found out I think my family was pretty boring. I traced it back to England, I think, but just not too exciting of stuff happened, but it was kind of cool, and maybe some of y'all have done that. But I want you to know today that Matthew starts his gospel with this genealogy is because he wants you and I, he wants us to rest in the fact that God sent his Messiah, Jesus Christ, to us. And I believe as we look at this genealogy together, we're going to see some lessons. And let me say this. As we look at this genealogy, I want you to begin to think about your genealogy. I want you to think about your past. Some of you may, if we had a conversation, you may have some, some things in your past that you're very proud of, and those would be the first things you tell me. But some of you may be like me. Maybe you have some things in your past that you may conveniently forget. Or you may have an uncle that you really don't want to talk about. Or some of you may have that one family member who everybody thinks is crazy and everybody goes, oh, bless. in the South we say things like, oh, bless your heart, which is a fancy way of saying you're not too good, I suppose. And if you're sitting here right now going, gee, there's nobody in my family like that, guess what? Maybe you are that one that everybody else looks at and says, bless your heart. Well, I don't know, but I do know this. God has a place for you in his story. And we're going to see that in these lessons as we look at this passage together. I want you to rest in the truth of Jesus Christ. I want you to know and take encouragement and be blessed by this genealogy. I want you to follow along. I'm going to read it. As I read these names, I will forewarn you that I'm just going to say them with an insane amount of confidence. Do not take that to mean I'm saying it right but I'm going to say it boldly and with confidence. Amen? So you do, the, you do the same. Verse number one in Matthew 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Notice this. The son of David. The son of Abraham. Which, by the way, is an outline for the rest of it. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. 
Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Simon, and Simon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, verse number 9, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Verse 12, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, Eliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. That's the genealogy. I want you to notice several things in this genealogy. Number one is this point, point number one. This story is for real. The first lesson you see from this genealogy is this story actually happened. Fairy tales, fantasy stories begin with things like once upon a time. Or they'll say in a galaxy far, far away. Well, Matthew chooses to begin his gospel with a genealogy, which is Matthew's way of saying this actually happened. One of the most powerful real life stories I ever heard about this genealogy was from a couple, was a couple who were Wycliffe Bible translators. The Wycliffe Bible translators are, are missionaries who go to people groups in the world who do not have a written language. There are thousands of different uh, people groups in the world, and some even today who, who don't have a written language. The Wycliffe Bible translators go in amongst the people, learn them, love them, get to know them, help them have a written language, number one, but then translate the Bible so that they can learn about Jesus and learn about the stories of the Bible in their own language. Well, it was a small tribe in Papua New Guinea called the Binamarian people, and the couple's name was Des and Jenny. This, was, this happened in the 1970s. When Des and Jenny moved into the Binamarian people in Papua New Guinea, this tribe was close to extinction. Des and Jenny chose this people group because they went from about 3,000 people in their people group 
to just a little over 100 by the time Des and Jenny arrived. This couple chose this group because they wanted to convey the fact that God loves everyone, even the smallest of people. As they began to translate it, you can actually read the story in a book called Hidden People, How Remote New Guinea Culture Was Bought Back from the Brink of Extinction. Well, they translated the Gospel of Matthew, the entire Gospel except one part. And can you guess which part they hadn't got to yet? What we just read. The first 17 verses, those, quote, uninteresting verses, right, that told about Jesus' ancestry. Well, they had a language helper who, who, was, a, who was a local, who, who was Bimenarian, named Sisia. And so Sisia said, well, let's, we need to translate this too. And they said, okay. So they sat down. didn't take long. You, you just sort of, sort of uh, transliterate the names anyway and, and, and write it. And then after he wrote it, Sisia said, the tribal leader wants to meet with you, and he wants to meet with you tonight. Let me read to you the rest of the story. Des wondered, what is the tribal leader up to? Why meeting tonight? Why does he want me to bring what I've translated today? That night, Des took the lantern and walked a short distance to the tribal leader's house just above his own. He walked into the central room. It was filled to capacity. The families were there around the fire. And the rooms to the side were packed with people. He was led immediately to a seat on the floor beside the fire. Sisia took command and spoke in his usual authoritarian voice. I've asked Des to come and read what we translated this morning. I can't tell it to you. I want to, you to hear it for yourselves. And the room became extraordinarily still as he began to read what we just read. The ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, descendant of Abraham, King David, etc., etc. As he read it, he could feel all the eyes glued on him. Des became conscious that the tribal chief was watching him. As he continued reading, more and more people began pressing. The people from the other rooms were pushing into the central room. Des felt scared. He had a sense of being crushed. Not just the pressure of all the bodies, but the silence. It seemed like not a dog barked, not a baby cried, not a person released his breath. Listen to this. He didn't know if the names he listed offended some ritual taboo about which he knew nothing. If the people were angry that they was being so blatantly publicized, he was in an awkward position. There was no way of escape, and with the atmosphere so charged, he dared not ask a question. So he kept on reading, and he read all the way to the end. They had heard him out. Des raised his eyes to look at those within a breath of his face and saw not anger but incredulity. The tribal chief demanded, why didn't you tell us all this before? Des was scared. Here's what the tribal chief said. No one bothers to write down the ancestors of spirit beings. It's only real people who record their genealogical table. Someone else cried, Jesus must be a real person. Someone else said, their ancestry goes back further than ours. Jesus must have been real on earth. Then what the missionaries have taught us is real. Jesus is real. Jesus, this genealogy teaches us that this is a real story. You've heard the phrase, cool story, bro? Well, this is a cool story, bro, but it's also a real story. This actually happened. 
And that makes all the difference. There's no room in the Bible for some nonsense of just, well, just believe whatever you want to believe, whatever feels good in my heart. No, the truth is that Jesus is a real person and that makes all the difference. Point number two. The other lesson we learn from the genealogy is that this story centers history on Jesus Christ. I believe you can see these notes in your bulletin as well. The story centers history on Jesus Christ. Matthew takes what the world probably considered an insignificant family line and organizes all of human history around it. If you know anything about first century at that part of the world, it certainly did not seem like Jesus was the focal point of history at the time. Israel was nothing more than an insignificant Roman province because Rome ruled. And nobody in Rome was paying attention to this family tree. But God made a promise to Abraham to bring salvation to the world. If you go back and look in Genesis, you're going to see God say some very specific things to Abraham, which is why he's so important in this story. God told Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great name, and that certainly has happened. But God also told Abraham that all the nations in the earth will be blessed through you, and that your descendants will multiply as the the sands on the seashore. But in the first century, there was not a sense among people that Jesus was the center of history or that this family was anything necessarily significant. Does that sound familiar to you today? Do you you think that a large majority of our world has a sense that Jesus is the center of history? Or are you like me when you look around and you read the news and you read social media and you see what's going on? It's different countries jockeying for power. There are literally people right now at war for each other fighting over land on this earth and all these things are going on. But Jesus is the center of history and Matthew wants you and I to see that. I find this very encouraging and I hope that you do too. Because when you look around today, it often does not look like Jesus is the center of history. News outlets, social media, they're not looking to Jesus to figure out where the world is heading. They may look to the markets, they may look to the White House, they may look to world's politics, but I want you to know that when Matthew starts with this genealogy and lets you trace it all the way back to Abraham, he's letting you know that the perspective of the world and the things that are going on around us are insignificant drops in the bucket compared to what God is doing in building his kingdom here on this earth. We sang earlier, Joy to the World. I don't know if you caught it, but if you really think about the text of Joy to the World, it really focuses as much on his, or more on his second coming than it does his birth. We, we, we sang the text, He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. That has not happened in its fullest yet, but there's coming a day when Christ will return to earth and he will make all things new. And Matthew is reminding us that Jesus is the center of history. Doesn't it make sense then that he should be the center of your life and my life? Point number three. This story demonstrates God's work. 
this story demonstrates God's work. God is working in all things, good and bad, for his purposes. Now let me point something out. Go back to verse 17 in Matthew chapter 1. Look how he closes his genealogy. He says, all the generations, notice it's three parts, from Abraham to David are 14 generations. David to the deportation of Babylon, remember David in the Babylon, he lists what? 14 generations. And then it says from Babylon to Jesus Christ himself, 14 generations. Matthew gives you three sets of 14. It may come across as random, especially if you compare this to yet another genealogy in Luke where there's a little bit of difference in the genealogy. We don't have time to dissect all that today in our sermon, but if you want to go down that rabbit hole later, I'm glad to talk with you through those two genealogies. But Matthew has three sets of 14. I want you to consider this. Three sets of 14, you could also say that that would be six sets of seven. 14 and three, we'll do a little math today, right? Six times seven is 42. 14 and three is 42. Three generations of 14 or six sets of seven. Like, What are you doing? Crazy math stuff on Sunday morning. I want you to consider this. Jesus is the seventh seven. When you read through these generations, I believe Matthew is making the point that Jesus is the culmination of these generations, which is why I think he numbers it the way he did. He is showing that God has superimposed his seal of perfection on history. I believe that he is teaching us that God is working in good things and bad. Not only because of that, but also because of some of the people who are listed in the genealogy and some of the things that are listed in the genealogy. Go back to verse 6. It lists David, right? David, who, sure, it does say he's a man after God's own heart, but he's also one who committed adultery. He's also one who committed murder by having Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed. God looks at that mess and says, I still have a plan. It mentions a couple of kings of Israel. Let me point a couple to you out. Ahaz, who it says is the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, if you go back to the Old Testament, he was a good king. Ahaz, on the other hand, was not a good king. If you go back and read in Kings and Chronicles about Ahaz, Ahaz sacrificed his own children in idolatry. The text literally reads that he sacrificed, he killed, he murdered his own children. There's another name mentioned in this genealogy. You can see it as you read through. Manasseh. Guess what Manasseh did? He did the same thing. He sacrificed his children. If I was talking about my genealogy, I'd have skipped those guys. I'd have talked about Hezekiah. I'd, I'd have talked about the good dudes. I wouldn't have talked about those guys. Just the most deplorable Wicked violence you can think of, but guess what? God still has a plan, and God is still working. Some of us may have messy dysfunction in our life. 
God is continuing to work and he is working in the darkest parts of your personal genealogy to point you and I back to him. As I talk to soldiers, I often ask this question and I ask you, why did you join the army? I get a lot of different answers. But sometimes I get an answer of something to the effect that I'm getting away from something in my past. I'm getting away from my family. Maybe I joined and raised my right hand to leave some of those dark parts of my personal genealogy back there so I can get a fresh start. Well, guess what? I don't know what brought you here to this place, but I guarantee you this, according to the principle that this passage is teaching, God is working in your life in the good things and the bad to bring you to him. I can't help but think of the passage that's very famous. Many people know it in Romans 8, where all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Notice very specifically, that passage does not say that all things are good. Right? Y'all ever have things in your life happen that are not good? Raise your hand if you've had not good things. Right, we all have. I've done not good things. I have sinned. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. God is working through all those things, good and bad. God is still at work in your life. God has a plan for you and for me. Point number four. This story, God's story, is for the outsider. This story is for the outsider. In Jesus' day, a genealogy was like a resume. Some of you have wrote resumes, or if you're real fancy, what's the Latin, the curriculum vitae? I don't really understand the difference, but they both just kind of tell people about stuff I've done. Do you write the bad stuff that you did? Or you write the good stuff. You write the good stuff because you're trying to get hired, right? You're on the AIM marketplace. You don't, you don't put your failures. You put all your successes and the thousands of people that you helped and the millions of dollars you saved the government and all that good stuff. You, you put the good stuff. Well, in Jesus' day, a genealogy was like a resume. It showed their worth. And so back then, like today, resumes were sometimes... Fudged. Resumes were sometimes, we'll leave that part out. So we could say, wow, look at, look at this pedigree. Look at this genealogy. But I want you to notice a couple of people that Jesus includes in his genealogy, which gives me hope and I think is very powerful. First of all, Jesus includes women, which would not have been typical in the first century for a genealogy. He mentions Tamar. We'll talk about that in a minute. He mentions David. We already talked about David and his sin. He mentions Ruth, who's a Moabite, who's, who's not even Jewish, who's an outsider brought in by Boaz. If you read the book of Ruth, read about the kinsman redeemer. What an awesome story about bringing in the outsider. Rahab, who's not only a foreigner, not a Jew herself, but also a prostitute. Yet she's mentioned in Hebrews as one having faith. I've already mentioned to you Ahaz, evil, wicked man, Manasseh, some of the most detestable acts you can ever think of. I asked you earlier, have you ever done Ancestry.com? Be careful, because we don't know what we might find. 
messy stuff, stuff that we don't talk about, stuff that we don't talk about around a Thanksgiving table, so to speak. Go back in Genesis 38 sometime. I'll summarize it as best I can right now. Read the story of Tamar. Go back and look in, the, in Matthew chapter 1. It mentions in, in, that, in those first verses Judah and, and his brothers. And then in, in verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerubbabel, Tamar. Let me tell you a little bit about Tamar as, as best I can, and I'll share with you I am very uncomfortable in trying to explain this story, and you'll probably see why, and it'll give you a chance to go read the original story for yourself in Genesis. Messy stuff, that's what I'm trying to talk about here. Tamar was the wife of one of Judah's sons. Well, her husband died before they could have kids. So in those days, if a man dies and left his wife without kids... It was the obligation of the deceased one's brother to marry her and give her children. Does that make sense? It's like, dude dies, all right, brother, you need to marry this lady and, and give her kids. That's just the way they did it. The brother's name was Onan, and he begrudgingly takes her as his wife, and he doesn't want to have kids. It's expensive, whatever reason, I don't know. You know I don't want to deal with it. So whenever they, this is where it gets very uncomfortable, whenever they came together, thank the Lord for the King James translation who puts it delicately, let me quote it to you, as they came together as husband and wife, the King James says, quote, he spilled it on the ground so that he wouldn't give seed to his brother. Is anybody in the room feeling any more? It's the cringiest chapter in the Bible, good night. I can't even believe I'm sharing this with you, and I'm so thankful we have children's church, but I'm trying to be delicate because I'm recognizing we got children in the room too. But is everybody tracking what I'm saying that the Bible is saying? Okay. Well, God wasn't pleased with this. Onan dies. He's done. So now Judah has two sons down, and he's only got three. Well, legally speaking, Tamar was supposed to be given to Judah's third son, but at this point, Judah feels like Tamar must be cursed, and he, didn't, he, he stalls. So Tamar has her own plan. Judah's never going to let her marry the third son, so she dresses like a prostitute so that she can attract her father-in-law, Judah, so that she can be with him, and she gets pregnant by her father-in-law. Is anybody else feeling as awkward as I am right now? This, you talk about cringe factor. You're like, I can't believe this is in the Bible. It's all in Genesis 28. I'm not making anything up, I promise. Which begs the question, you talk about messiness before we're too hard on Tamar. She must have known that this would work based on probably some of the characteristics of Judah himself. Does that, does that make sense? This is a mess. Uh, any of you ever in the counseling ministry, can you imagine this family coming in and sitting on the couch and talking to you about all these shenanigans? I mean, good night. And then... She gets pregnant, and then she comes out. And she says, here, I have the belt of the man who's the, who's, who's the father, who's the baby, who the babies are, and it's Judah's belt. And Judah's like, well, man, she's more righteous than I am. And I was like, you're all messed up. You remember the, we don't talk about Bruno? We don't talk about Bruno. You talk about something you don't talk about. Well, this is crazy. Do you have things in your life? Maybe they're not that crazy. I don't know. But do you have things in your life that, that you just don't want to talk about? Do you have that cringe factor that, oh man, I, I hope nobody ever finds out about this. You ever had people in your family who embarrass you? 
the infamous uh, Cousin Eddie in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation seems to embarrass Clark Griswold to no end, for those of you who know that movie. And like I said earlier, if you're thinking, I don't have anybody like that in my family, that's not me. Maybe you are that person. I don't know. The cringe factor. My point is this. Jesus' genealogy, Matthew so aptly and intentionally points out, is filled with outsiders of every kind. Moral failures. People who weren't even in the bloodline per se. They weren't Jewish. Gender. And what I call the cringe factor of some crazy stories. All that tells me that Jesus came for the outcast. And if Jesus came for them, no doubt he came for you and he came for me. Or as David Platt put it, these names are included in the line that leads to Christ so that we can know our names are included in the line that leads from Christ. Anybody here ever felt like a loner or an outcast? Like that classic Christmas cartoon back in the day, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Remember all the Island of Misfit toys? There's a classic one for you to go back and watch this holiday season. Are you a loner? Are you isolated? Well, Christ came for the outsider, as we see in the lessons from this genealogy. Let me read to you a passage of scripture before we move on. This is in Ephesians chapter 2, which we've hit pretty heavy over the past several weeks. But listen to this in chapter 2. Paul says, remember that at times you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, watch this, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who have made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. The gospel message, this story, is for the outsider. And then finally, our last lesson is this, point number five. This story, it's for you. It's for me. Find rest in Christ. Find rest in Christ. I mentioned earlier that three sets of 14, the three, gener the, the three sets of 14 generations makes six sets of seven. That makes Jesus the seventh seven. I don't think it's an accident that in the Gospel of Matthew it is where it is recorded that Jesus makes this powerful statement, Come to me, all you who are weary or labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. I will give you rest. When you read this genealogy, he finishes up in verse 17, and then he jumps back in to the actual birth in 18, when the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. He's the son of David. He's the king. We owe him our allegiance. He's the one who is the Messiah because God promised Abraham that all nations will be blessed through him. 
When we read the end of Matthew's Gospel, what does he say? Make disciples of all nations. That's the last thing Matthew records in his Gospel. Do you know what Matthew's trying to teach us? He's trying to teach us that here's God's plan for salvation in this genealogy. And as Jesus ascends back to heaven, he gives those instructions to his disciples. God is still in the business of making disciples. God is calling you and he's calling me to find rest in him. John chapter 1 puts it this way. To all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We're going to sing a song that's become one of my favorites in recent years. That's a play off of a classic hymn, O Come All You Faithful. But this song says, O Come All You Unfaithful. That's powerful because if you're like me and we do an honest reflection of our life, we recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ for salvation, I encourage you to place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I encourage us to reflect as we sing in just a minute on the fact that this message is for you. This message is for me. Rest in it. Trust in Him. You may be here and you may have been holding on to a past, a cringe factor, a moment of which you're not proud, something that's embarrassing, something maybe that, maybe that, maybe that you did that was a sin, that was wrong. Turn those things over to the Lord. Trust in the fact that He came for you and rest in Him. I invite you to stand. We're going to sing together in just a moment, but I want to lead you in a prayer. As we sing here in just a moment, I invite you to sing along. If you feel led, you want to pray in your seat and, and talk to the Lord for just a moment, I'll invite you to do that as well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you, those who were far off at one point, as the Bible says. We thank you that those of us who have trusted in Christ for salvation, we're brought near. God, I pray that we would come to you. I pray that we would bring all of our cares and cast them on you because you care for us. God, I pray for your people today. No doubt in our congregation, God, we, we have many burdens. We have past. We have all kinds of messy things. But God, we want to turn those things to you. God, may you speak to our hearts. And as we think about the preparation that you did to provide our salvation, Heavenly Father, we thank you for such a great love as that. Speak to us now, and it's in Christ's name. Amen.